and I want people to know that I am going to help them through it. I will see it through regardless of how long it takes. You're listening to the Mental Health Download from the nonprofit Mental Health Association Oklahoma. I'm Matt Gleason. On today's episode, we have my bestie, Lucinda Morty, on the podcast for actually the second time. So glad that she's with us. She is such an amazing soul and amazing mental health professional, and she has helped so many people in Oklahoma for years, and we're just so glad that she is our Sunbridge Clinical Coordinator, and that means that she is the amazing voice on the other end of a telephone line when someone calls and they need help navigating the very complex mental health and homelessness and substance use systems. So with that being said, Lucinda, welcome to the Mental Health Download. I'm glad to be back. Okay, so let's look back on this year of some of the most memorable cases that you have, of uh, Sunbridge cases. But first, I want you to give the audience just uh, some context about what Sunbridge is and kind of what you know a typical day for you is like as the Sunbridge clinical coordinator. Yeah, so the Sunbridge program is actually comprised of two pieces. There is the Mental Health Assistance Center, and then there is the Pro Bono Counseling Program. So most times when people are calling into the organization looking for assistance or help, all calls come directly through the Mental Health Assistance Center. And it is from there that I start to gather additional information on what the caller needs whether it be navigating the mental health system or whatever services they're looking for, substance abuse, maybe they need assistance with a loved one who might be involved in the criminal justice system. And sometimes people are calling about counseling needs. So depending on what their need is, we determine that over the phone or sometimes in person because people do walk into the office or they will schedule a time to meet with me because they want to talk in a confidential environment face-to-face. So the goal is to try to get people connected to the right place first. And I think that has been my motto since I started here because I know how difficult this system is. And my goal is also to ensure that these individuals and families have someone that they can talk to so that they don't feel alone when they are struggling with a variety of issues because people should not feel that they can't reach out. And so in addition to that, part of my role is also to reduce the stigma around accessing any services that someone may need. And how many volunteer counselors do we have in the Sunbridge program? And, and, and explain how that works and how important it is to recruit new mental health professionals to provide pro bono services. Of course. So we have about 16 unique individuals who are providing our therapy services both here in Tulsa and in Oklahoma City. So we are very blessed that these individuals donate their time to us. So this is separate from whatever job they currently do Monday through Friday, whether that be working for an organization full-time, whether that be doing private practice full-time. And part of that is I believe it's their passion because they don't want individuals to go without services just because they can't afford it. So with Sunbridge and the Pro Bono Counseling Program, it is up to eight sessions that an individual can receive at no cost to them. 
There's a short 10-minute screen that I do with individuals over the phone because I want to make sure that Sunbridge is appropriate or if they might need a different level of care. So I ask sometimes additional questions than just what's on the screen because I want to make sure that the individual is able to get all of the services that they need versus just being offered only one thing. So again, I think giving people options is so important. When it comes to the therapists, it is amazing when I talk to individuals in the community who hear about this particular program because our therapists are vetted. These are people who have worked in the mental health system for a number of years, some of them more than half their life. And the fact that they donate and dedicate their time to our mission and to the organization. And when I hear stories of individuals who complete their therapy sessions, it is amazing in a post-survey that we do of where they were when they did the pre-survey when they first came in, a lot of those questions might be things that they were never able to do. And just in a short amount of time, they're able to overcome the barriers or the conflict or whatever may have been going on in their life so that they can go back to work, to be with their family. Maybe it means starting back to school again. So they have the confidence that they are able to go back into the real world and be successful. And the interesting part is individuals who've gone through the Sunbridge program are often my biggest referral base when it comes to other people seeking those services. So recruiting therapists is key. I am in the community a lot, always talking about Sunbridge and the benefit of that particular program. And a lot of the feedback that I get from our therapists is things like, I want to stay connected to the community. I want people to know that even though this service may be scary at first, receiving therapy maybe for the first time, that they also have another person that they can talk to and it's confidential and they can it's private they can talk about whatever their their needs are and so i think with recruiting those individuals we are very i think above the game probably the highest standard of therapists in this particular program because their heart is in it and it's in it for the right reasons and they have a variety of different backgrounds so we're always recruiting individuals who might have a specialization in a certain area like trauma or substance abuse or maybe they've worked with individuals who have been homeless before and so it's really nice to try to capture a wide range of variety of therapists um, also cultural issues uh, we we run into that a lot in our community that some people have a preference they want to work with a particular therapist maybe it's a therapist of their own cultural racial background because they feel more comfortable so our goal is to get them connected with someone that they would feel safe and comfortable so that they have a positive experience. All right. I'll just kind of talk about why you are the mental health professional that you are today. I am the mental health professional I am today because of the clients that I've served. I feel that a lot of times I know that book smart is very important. Having degrees is very important, especially when you're providing a level of care like mental health. Uh, it's the same way we would treat all health, is that you have to have the basis and the background in order to be a good clinician. 
But truly, I devote a lot of my gratitude for who I am in this field because of the clients that I've served. They've shared very intimate and personal details that some of them have never shared with individuals in their entire life. And I am just so honored and humbled and blessed that they trust me in confiding in me and knowing that I would never share their information about what's going on with them um, unless it was necessary. And that would be only to make sure that they got the level of care that they needed to keep them safe. So how long have you been with the association? I've been with the association a little over a year and a half. Nice. And you came from which organization? I came from community mental health. I used to work at Counseling and Recovery Services, where I was a therapist in the district mental health court program, which was a felony docket. And then I also was the associate director for the outpatient programs there um, in working with our adults. Okay. So I want to talk about You know, in this past year and a half that you've been with the association, when you think back about all the people that you've helped, what call comes to mind? Oh, there is a story that stands out the most. I was working with a family who had a young person in their family who was struggling with suicide. And the young person had reached out to teachers, was in therapy, and would address these particular issues. And a lot of times the adults in their life were actually discounting his feelings and his drawings. So he was even showing it in through like a type of art therapy that could probably be seen as art therapy, but through his artwork, he was expressing suicide and death. He had even talked to individuals about a plan and what he would do, and it was a very specific, clear plan. Um, If you can, and if it's okay, um, how old was that child? This young person was seven years old. Goodness. And the family had reached out to me. They got connected through us through suicide prevention training and was just desperate. They didn't know who to talk to, where to go, um, but they were very scared and concerned about um, their young person in their family. And there was a lot of emotions um, from what I would consider the trusted adult with this particular young person. In suicide prevention, we always talk about finding a trusted adult especially if you're a kid struggling or a young adult struggling with with mental health or with suicide so that you don't feel alone, but to find someone that you can trust. And so in this particular incident, the trusted adult was the one who had reached out to me. And this was not a one-time 10-minute phone conversation. This was probably over a month's period of several in-depth conversations to help them navigate the process. And so what we were looking at, because of my concern, there was the thoughts of suicide, there was the plans of suicide, the fact that 
this information had been shared with other adults who just didn't believe him. You know, th- those are those are pieces we t- teach in in our QPR training, which is question, persuade, refer, which is you take all threats seriously. You take all behavior clues and signs seriously. And the more signs and clues you see, obviously that means needing to get the person to help. And so I was that person to help them get to help. So I basically went through the very beginning of making that phone call to the inpatient facility to what was going to happen next to who they this young child was going to see as their providers, doctors, therapists, nurses, the fact that it was going to be in a hospital setting. And with my work with this family, um, they were able to get this young person into help. And I had shared with the trusted adult to go with him. So I wanted to make sure that she was part of getting him to help. And with that, I had shared if there's something that he can take with him to treatment so that he feels safe, let him do it. And so we came up with a couple of items um, so that that could be taken so they wouldn't feel as scared when they got to the facility. And it was interesting because I, I had shared that a lot of times when you go into an inpatient facility, you often have to take your shoes off. You can't take any personal items in with you because the people that are there may not know if there could be some kind of means to hurt themselves or other people. And so I, I kind of warned the family and had just kind of told them, you know, if they tell you that you can't take those items, just respect that and go ahead and either put them back into the car or hold them out in, a, in an area so that you can get them after your assessment, after the providers, you know, agree whether or not to keep um, the individual or not. And so because this person was so young... The staff at the hospital, particularly security, um, mentioned that normally they wouldn't allow individuals to take items back. However, because there was another trusted adult there who would be monitoring this young person, the security person was okay with it. I think in my career, that's probably one of the first times that I've ever seen that happen. And I think for me, what stood out is We're changing the way we see mental health. It's no longer labels. It's no longer demeaning individuals or telling them all the things they can't do, but instead negotiating and figuring out what we can do to keep this person safe emotionally, because this was the first time that they went to the hospital. And I think as a parent, this particular case also stood out. Because this young person was close to my daughter's age. And so all I kept thinking was, if this were my child, how would I want someone to help navigate me? And it was literally probably the most beautiful experience I've probably had since I've been here at the association. We stayed in contact um, during that time so that the family knew that they still had support from me, that just because we got them connected to help didn't mean that they could no longer talk to me. So we kind of developed an alliance and a safety net and got others involved so that the family was prepared when this young person came back home to welcome them, to know that they were going to be in a different place emotionally 
and to be able to capture that piece so that the family was able to make the changes they needed to make before their loved one came home so that the family stayed intact and then could grow and move together. Um, it was amazing. And it's interesting that from this particular uh, family, how many other families or individuals have been referred to me because of the assistance and help that they received where they thought there was nobody there to be able to help and guide them through the process and to listen to their emotions and their fears and just all of it, you know, and we know that navigating fragmented mental health systems are very hard. And yes, there was a little bumps in the road. I'm not going to lie. It was not perfect. It was not seamless. But once we got the individual through those little bumps and got them into what I would consider the seamless part, it was literally seamless. Everything that I had shared with this family about what to expect it all happened. And so again, I think that level of trust is they knew that I knew what I was talking about, that I wasn't just making it up and I was being honest and I was being real and I was not sugarcoating anything. I was not making promises. And so I think they saw me as a real individual who truly care about individuals who need help and to help families so that they don't feel alone, that they don't feel like they are in the dark, but just guiding them through that whole process. And I mean, this was probably the most patient family that I have worked with um, here at the association, and they didn't give up. And I think that that was so important because often when people hit those little bumps or what I like to call roadblocks, often they will take that as a sign of, well, see, I can't get help. But they worked through those bumps and never once gave up. And again, I think when you're able to work through those bumps, that helps people with growth and with change and with success so that if they ever run into bumps in the road again, they can recall the times that they've been helped. They can call upon individuals who've helped them before, and those people are still there, whether it be a different person, but those types of people are still there for them. And it was just amazing. It's probably one that really pulls at my heartstrings. Um, I know that there were a couple of times as the family was expressing emotion, those emotions came through the phone. And there were many a times where I was having to exercise my own self-care and taking deep breaths because I could just hear the pain and the fear and so much love behind the emotion, um, even though those initial feelings of, of fear were there, um, underneath all of that was love. And again, I think providing hope to individuals is so important. My, I think my own personal journey through dealing with trauma is to know that there is hope to be able to show someone that you can be resilient and that you don't have to be perfect because none of us are perfect. But if we can make the next right step in the next right direction, we've been successful. We're making progress. And it's those baby steps that are so important. Um, and the security guard, what were the items that he let that seven-year-old bring into the mental health facility? He allowed him to bring in his favorite teddy bear and a rock. And I think that's where the emotion is for me is that children cling to items that make them feel safe. And we know 
through a lot of research when we look at nervousness and anxiety, that sometimes just having a little token or something that we can touch and feel, maybe smell, allows us to put us back to a place where we felt safe. I do that myself sometimes when I'm feeling a little nervous and anxious. Um, I have different things that I do to help me stay focused, um, to help me stay calm, especially when I am having to hear calls like this, because of course, you know, hearing the the details of it, I need to remain calm for, for that family. And I need to truly listen with my ears and my heart to make sure that I am capturing every piece of it um, because their time is so important to me and I don't want to miss any detail. Um, but if we think back at times in our lives where maybe a blanket or a stuffed animal or another object or item that may have been given to us or made for us by another family member, and that is something that maybe we've carried maybe since birth, often these types of items are typically what kind of peats people back to a, a homeostasis or a place where they feel calm and at peace and are loved. And I know that for a lot of kids, especially in the school setting, there's been a lot more openness with teachers around really making classrooms conducive to not just the intellectual learning, but the emotional and social learning as well. And so I'm very thankful that this security guard really saw this from a different angle and didn't just stick to the policies and the procedures of the hospital. Yeah. One of the things that you've you've said is is that there is power in letting someone speak and to feel heard. And in a lot of those same ways, we've been espousing the mantra that, you know, we want people to see people for their shared humanity and not dehumanizing um, and stigmatizing and hurtful and horrible words that people use related to mental illness, uh, homelessness, suicide, and people who have been justice involved. So my question is, Lucinda, how do you want the world to see you? I would like individuals to see me as a support as a trusted confidant that if I don't know something, I'm going to tell somebody. I don't know, but let me help you figure it out. Let me make a few calls. I don't want people to give up. And I want them to know that just because they may have experienced labeling either currently or in the past, I am someone that sees everyone for the good and to give them that hope. Because often, I think in our society, the labels are worn like a jacket. And so I want people to know that you don't have to wear that jacket, you can take it off and it's okay. And to know that when you call me, the person that you're going to hear on the end of the line is compassionate, is going to be honest and fair and is going to lead you in the direction that is the safest and most appropriate and to help whether it be themselves or a loved one. And to know that sometimes, even though it's things you may not want to hear in the moment, 
to not give up because I don't want to have anybody walk away from a situation thinking that everything is going to be perfect because it's going to be difficult. And it may be really hard at first, but in the end, when the issue is resolved, they're going to feel better about the experience, whether it be with me, whether it be with a provider, and to know that they were able to overcome it. I know that sometimes people may not always want to hear the truth, but I have always abided by probably one of my most basic and important moral upbringings that I had is to be honest and to not lie because lies get you in trouble. And so I present every situation with honesty. And I will often preface things with, this may be hard to hear, or I want to be honest with you about this situation, because then that prefaces what I'm about to say next. But to know that they can call me anytime, and that if maybe they have a need today, and those pieces get resolved, and they need something again in six months, is that they can always call again. That's what I'm here for. And I want people to know that I am going to help them through it. I will see it through regardless of how long it takes. It doesn't matter whether it's 10 minutes or six weeks where we're having to work regularly. I'm going to see it through until the end, until I know that this person no longer needs our assistance based on what their initial need was. So to reach out to Mental Health Association Oklahoma and our assistance center and Lucinda, you can call 918-585-1213 or 405-943-3700. You can also email us at info at org, or you can send us a private message via Facebook. Um, before we go, um, there's a few few things I need to tell Lucinda. And so first is thank you. You, just like all the people that you serve, you, I called you uh, when I was falling apart. Um, um, at the time, my brother, I had lost my sister not too long before. And then I, my brother, uh, as I've talked about on the podcast, uh, we found out he had pancreatic cancer. And I knew that I needed to get on meds super fast. And the first person I called to figure out what I should do because I had never really been on medications before, but I knew I needed services immediately because um, I was in such darkness. The first person I called was Lucinda. I just want everybody to feel completely and totally free to call Lucinda. You know, she is such an amazing listener and such an amazing soul, such an amazing helper. Um, and so, and the second thing I want to say is that Lucinda recently lost her father and I'm so sorry for that loss. And I want you to sort of put yourself in the position of someone calling you who's lost someone. What would you tell them if they've lost, you know, just lost their father? What services would you direct them to? What advice would you give them? I think part of it would be one, reaching out to me first and foremost, because I can relate. And secondly, we would start looking at supports. 
Uh, maybe it's a grief support group. Maybe it's coming in through Sunbridge and meeting with one of our therapists. Maybe it's referring them to a local provider here in town. We are very lucky and have a provider here in town that focuses solely on grief. However, we have lots of providers um, in town that I know specialize in grief as well, private practitioners. And I think reaching out is just so important. Um, And also, you know, finding what works for you. So I think for me, what has helped is I do a lot of self-help and a lot of self-reflection. And so I picked up a book on uh, losing a parent. It was a book that I read 14 years ago when I lost my mother, and I'm now picking it up again. I also belong to a couple of closed social media groups because working full time here, sometimes it's hard to be able to attend a face to face grief support group. So I have, you know, thousands of people virtually who are my support. And it's just interesting that in the last couple of weeks since I've joined the group, um, people are starting to talk about where everybody is at so that if we can get together at some point and to just let everybody know there are local resources. I mean, I even put myself out there um, of a place that someone can call, whether they're living in another state or whether they're living here in Oklahoma. Um, I can definitely direct them to places to get help. But I feel like through my own grief, I am also still helping others, which is, in my opinion, probably um, the most healing for me. Um, So I feel like Yes, it was very tragic and sad, and I'm still grieving the loss of my father. Through my work, I am healing, and it is amazing. And I have probably felt more at peace through this grief, and don't get me wrong, I have bumps, um, than probably any other death that I have had to face, including my mother's. And I think a lot of it just has to do with time is that I was equipped. I was able to do all of the things that I needed to do before my father passed so that for me, all of those things were left at peace and that I didn't have anything left undone. And I think that that is so important. And so whether somebody reaches out today, next week, six months from now, is to know that I'm here. And I'm here to help in any way that I can. Um, And there are so many options and so many things available to help individuals work through whatever difficulty that they're going through. Okay, this is uh, easily the most emotional podcast we've ever done. (laughs) I'm surprised I did it without. And I I think a lot of it is just because I was prepared um, because I knew we're probably going to talk about some tough stuff. And so, again, I think taking care of myself this morning, coming in a little bit later, spending some puppy time uh, because, you know, I didn't want to get emotional, (laughs) too emotional on the on the podcast. (laughs) Okay, so um, we're going to close out this thing now. And I want to, as, as our listeners know, we, we close it out with Mike Rose's mantra, or his battle cry, uh, go do good things. As I said, uh, Lucinda inspires me to go do good things every day. Her compassion is unparalleled. And uh, I had a meditation teacher who said the secret of life is compassion. And so Lucinda is living that every single day. So Lucinda, will you do us the great honor of sharing the last few words and then telling our listeners to go do good things? Sure. Listen with your heart. Doesn't matter who you encounter. 
Say hello to somebody who's on the street who may have their head down, to know that they may be struggling, and sometimes just saying hi or just acknowledging them with a smile could make all the difference in their life. And go do good things. Amen. Thank you, Lucinda. Thank you. At Mental Health Association Oklahoma, we've spent the year asking people, how do they want to be seen? It's a simple question that is sometimes hard to answer. We've created a big mosaic with answers from hundreds of people. They say things like hashtag see me as capable, hardworking, or kind. Or maybe hashtag see me as a leader, an advocate, or a change maker. As an organization, we talk a lot about people first. Our programs and services are designed to help people be seen and acknowledged for their humanity. From suicide prevention and fighting stigma around mental illness, to ending homelessness and reforming criminal justice, a lot of people in this organization are moving the needle on important topics in the state of Oklahoma. The thing is, these programs and services are not possible without our generous donors. Join us in our mission by donating today. Visit mhaok.org and hit the big donate button at the top of the page or donate on our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash mhaokla.